I have taken what I would consider to be a mild and healthy interest in the feeding and cataloging of the local bird population. Uh, I, I put out one feeder, and it turned out to be too small, so I put out a bigger one, and then uh, it turned out I needed a different kind of feeder, you know, for the finches, and uh, cold weather came, so I had to take down the hummingbird feeder and put out the suet feeder, and it's healthy. Don't listen to her. Um, uh, <laughs> uh, anyway, <laughs> I, uh, I ran a cable between two pine trees, you know, to, to hang up the, the feeders so the squirrels didn't get in and the tree rats have found ways to thwart my system. I need to make some modifications, but I also, uh, I got out, I inherited my grandmother's old, old books on songbirds, and I downloaded the Audubon app on my phone, so I'll be there uh, listening to some bird calls and trying to identify the, the chirps and whistles that I heard that morning, and apparently it's strange to just hear random uh, bird calls in the house, uh, my regular updates on what new species is visiting our yard. The kids seem to appreciate it, right? Uh, but uh, my wife... <laughs> I don't know. <laughs> but there's something interesting, I think, about the need to know the names of these uh, feathered visitors. You know, what difference does it make what it's called? Uh, they all look the same and tweet the same and they devour ravenously the same black oil sunflower seeds, regardless of whether, you know, I call it an eastern reticulated tree squeaker or a lesser crested swamp warbler. But, but what's in a name? You know, a name by any other, a rose by any other name would smell as sweet. So why does my daughter Rose give me the stink eye if I call her Evie? You know, I gave her that name. I think I could call her whatever I want. But there's something important about a name, though, isn't it? Uh, it's tied to our identity. Until I know the name of that tufted titmouse or yellow-bellied sap sucker, I feel like I don't know what I'm looking at, even though just some words that are really arbitrary... Does it even have a yellow belly? I don't know. But I feel like I know what I'm looking at when I know the name. And there's a reason for that. There's a reason that calling someone names can be hurtful. There's a reason that calling someone by their name can give a sense that you know them and remember them. There's a reason that even in our individualistic culture, we still think about having a son or a grandson who will carry on the family name. And that last impulse is even stronger in Ruth's day, in the Old Testament, except they didn't really have last names, so it was about remembering the name of the deceased. It was very important to them uh, that the name of the dead not be forgotten, that there should be some heirs to carry on that legacy and that family line to be forgotten, to have your name wiped off the face of the earth was a curse. And that's the idea behind this kinsman-redeemer concept we see in Ruth, where if a man dies and leaves a widow with no children, the law of Moses says his brother needs to marry that widow, and their firstborn son is going to carry on the name of the deceased, be the, the legal heir of the dead brother. Sorry, if I'm, I'm doing weird things, I've, I, I need to sneeze, but it's just, it's stuck. It's right there, you know. Um, so even though that son is not biologically descended from the deceased brother, he's considered legally to be that man's son. He's tied to that name. It's closer to identity even than we might think of DNA. 
And that's an important theme that comes out in Ruth chapter 4, which is our sermon text today. And just FYI, I asked Mike to give me two weeks on, on this one. Uh, there just seemed to be more here than I could fit into only one sermon, so you should all thank Mike for uh, uh, letting me divide this into two instead of just going on for a couple hours here. But, um, you know, I wanted to focus on this bit about the name, but there's also this story of Naomi and the suffering that she's been through and the resolution that, that comes to that, and those are really two different sermons. So today we'll look mostly at Ruth 4, 1 through 22. Uh, if you would like to grab your pew Bible, you'll find Ruth chapter 4 somewhere in there, uh, one of those pages, maybe 220-something, uh, or you could look at the table of contents. So Ruth chapter 4, verses 1 through 12. And starting in verse 1, Now Boaz had gone up to the gate and sat down there, and behold, the Redeemer of whom Boaz had spoken came by. So Boaz said, Turn aside, friend, sit down here. And he turned aside and sat down. And he took ten men of the elders of the city and said, Sit down here. So they sat down. Then he said to the Redeemer, Naomi, who has come back from the country of Moab, is selling the parcel of land that belonged to our relative Elimelech. So I thought I would tell you of it and say, buy it in the presence of those sitting here and in the presence of the elders of my people. If you will redeem it, redeem it. But if you will not, tell me that I may know, for there is no one besides you to redeem it. And I come after you. And he said, I will redeem it. Then Boaz said, The day that you buy the field from the hand of Naomi, you also acquire Ruth, the Moabite, the widow of the dead, in order to perpetuate the name of the dead in his inheritance. Then the Redeemer said, I cannot redeem it for myself, lest I impair my own inheritance. Take my right of redemption for yourself, for I cannot redeem it. Now this was the custom in former times in Israel concerning redeeming and exchanging To confirm a transaction, the one drew off his sandal and gave it to the other, and this was the the manner of a testing in Israel. So when the Redeemer said to Boaz, buy it yourself, he drew off his sandal. Then Boaz said to the elders and all the people, you are witnesses this day that I have bought from the hand of Naomi all that belonged to Elimelech and all that belonged to Kilian and Malon. And Ruth the Moabite, widow of Malon, I have also bought, I have bought to be my wife, to perpetuate the name of the dead and his inheritance, that the name of the dead may not be cut off from among his brothers and from the gate of his native place. You are witnesses this day. Then all the people who were at the gate and the elders said, We are witnesses. May the Lord make this woman who is coming into your house like Rachel and Leah, who together built up the house of Israel. May you act worthily in Ephrathah and be renowned, or may your name be called, in Bethlehem. And may your house be like the house of Perez, whom Tamar bore to Judah, because of the offspring that the Lord will give you by this young woman. Well, in last week's text in chapter 3, as we've been going through the story, we saw a plot twist. Uh, Ruth, this poor widow who had followed her widowed mother-in-law to Israel, uh, she discovered that Boaz was a redeemer. That means uh, that he could save her and Naomi from poverty by uh, marrying her, essentially, and 
also that the, the, their deceased husbands would not be forgotten. She went to ask him to be that redeemer. And the plot twist is that there's someone else who needs to be asked first. See, under the law of Moses, a brother was obligated uh, to serve as the, the kinsman redeemer to do this duty. But what if there isn't a brother? Uh, is the next closest relative obligated? Do they have to do it? What if it's a cousin, a second cousin, uh, father's brother's nephew's cousin's former roommate? You know, where does it stop along the line? And apparently what they decided is that while a brother is obligated to do this, a more distant relative uh, could opt out, and then the next closest relative might have the option. So this closer relative than Boaz sort of has the right of first refusal to redeem Ruth, to marry Ruth. It's an interesting plot twist because even though you know, there are some features of this that, that aren't like our typical love stories today, we still really want Ruth to end up with Boaz, don't we? Uh, he's just been so amazingly kind to her and, and helping to provide for her already and protecting her, and we don't know anything about this other guy. Well, there's another plot twist in today's text. There's some extra incentive for this other guy to marry Ruth. Real estate. Uh, Ruth comes with a tract of land. Naomi is selling Elimelech's field. Now, the legal status of this field, this is a, a strange detail that seems to come out of left field. We haven't heard about this field before. Uh, we have questions. Um, you know, can a widow inherit land? That's not really clear from Scripture, whether they could have in the Old Testament. Uh, had they already sold it outside the clan, maybe, when they left for Moab years ago during the famine, so that... Um, you know, there's a responsibility of a redeemer to buy it back into the family. Uh, or does she still own it, but it's just because she's a poor widow, uh, and she and her widowed daughter-in-law, Ruth, they're not in a position to farm the land or care for it, and so she needs to sell it and make sure that it stays in the clan. Uh, I don't know, but what's clear is that Naomi was still destitute beside, besides, uh, despite having some claim on this land. Uh, it seems to be in some kind of legal limbo. It's no benefit to her. Whatever the case, uh, we're surprised that Boaz leads with what looks like an incentive to redeem Ruth. You get a field with her. Um, I'm not sure why he leads with that. Uh, maybe, you know, if he led with the prospect of redeeming Ruth, it might look to outside observers like uh, he's trying to sneak the land in along with her in some kind of un underhanded way. I don't really know, but it certainly builds tension in the story, doesn't it? Uh, the closer redeemer initially says, yes, I will take the field. Boaz says, okay, when you buy the land, you also get Ruth. And implied there is that your first son with her is legally the heir of her dead husband and the rightful heir to the field that you're acquiring. Well, that turns out to be a poison pill for the guy. Uh, he's no longer interested, and, and we wonder why. Um, you know, it could be uh, part of his motivation is that Ruth is a foreigner, a Moabite, and Moabite women had these reputations, and he doesn't want any connection to that. Uh, could just be she has no connections in Israel, no benefit. There's no you know, powerful family or anything he's marrying into. Uh, that's mostly speculation. What the guy says is that he would be ruining his own inheritance. Uh, he's concerned for his own legacy. He'd be gaining a field, but he'd also be gaining some mouths to feed. Uh, he'll have to use his own resources to help produce heirs for somebody else. It just seems like a bad deal for him. 
Uh, The field he's getting out of it doesn't seem to be enough for him to come out ahead in his eyes. He'd be getting tangled up in something that could deplete his resources, the value of what he has left to pass on to his own heirs. And honestly, you know, an ancient uh, CPA uh, would probably agree that this makes good financial sense. Uh, He's not obligated to do it. It could damage his bottom line. So, you know, it has an appearance of being wise and sensible and good stewardship. You know, this doesn't sound like the kind of deal that's going to bring him financial peace. So he backs out, and Boaz steps in to redeem Ruth the Moabite. And at this point, there's a weird ceremony involving a shoe or a sandal. Uh, And we wonder what's going on there. It seems to be a cultural thing. You know, in our, our culture... Uh, we formalize agreements with paper, right? Uh, we autograph paper, and that's how we make something official and on the record. It's how we finalize a deal. Uh, we have witnesses often for that, just like uh, they had witnesses to the ceremony being completed. But, you know, other cultures, uh, especially those where paper or literacy aren't so much of a big thing, uh, even other cultures today might use uh, ceremony. Uh, I know some lawyers who once were working on a divorce case where uh, the couple was was foreign. Uh, The marriage would have taken place overseas. I'm not sure where they were from, but the husband in this case uh, claimed that they were never officially married because he never uh, gave her father a goat, per the custom where they were from. And so since the goat was never delivered, his argument was they weren't legally married, and so he's not obligated uh, to pay alimony or so forth. And so in court, they were able to simply respond by laughing and saying, what are you talking about, a goat? Uh, What goat? And just playing off the fact that in our culture, uh, uh, finalizing a a covenant like that with a ceremony is is so weird, it's funny, a goat. Um, This is kind of a sidebar. Uh, But since we don't have the same emphasis on ceremony, it's important, I think, that we still understand the the importance of making things uh, official, publicly recognized. Uh, It's common to hear uh, today, you know, that marriage is just a piece of paper, or I've had people tell me, you know, we're married in God's eyes, even though they're not legally married. I think that's rubbish. Uh, marriage is an on-the-record kind of thing before God and man. Uh, today's scripture reading from Genesis, uh, we, we saw the, why there is a need uh, to make it public knowledge as Abraham uh, tries to keep it a secret that Sarah is, is his wife to save his own skin. But uh, marriage is something that needs to be uh, recognized. And so in our culture, paper is the way we formalize that commitment. A uh, marriage certificate may not be in the Bible, but, but what it represents surely is. Um, could go on with understanding uh, the, some of the significance of, of baptism and what that says publicly, that maybe in our culture we just view it as a private act of devotion, but other cultures it is going on the record publicly. Um, that's part of why we talk about church membership and things, concepts, uh, having a membership role isn't in scripture, but it is going on the record in a way that, um, uh, you know, uh, it just makes that clear. Uh, it's just a sidebar. Um, what was I talking about, Ruth? Um, so they do this sandal thing, uh, and the deal is sealed, and Boaz has acquired a field. Uh, his marriage to Ruth, you know, has congealed. Uh, but what deeper truth is revealed other than, um, I can't stop rhyming, Well, again, it's about the names. 
In particular, there's a contrast between Boaz and this other redeemer that I think tells us a lot about what, what God is showing us in this passage. We don't know this other guy's name. In most English Bibles, if you look at verse 1, Boaz addresses him and, and it, it says, friend, you know, come, come and sit here, friend. Uh, another version, the New English translation, uses the phrase, what's your name? Come here, what's your name? Uh, the Hebrew is something like Poloni Almoni, or I'll just say Poloni Almoni, because it's easier to say, which might mean something like a certain person or certain one. It's similar to how we would use so-and-so to just substitute for somebody's actual name. It's interesting that it rhymes. You know, Poloni Almoni is a phony baloney name. Uh, one commentator compares it to Joe Schmo in English. So... Um, Seems to be a good analogy to me. But the author of Ruth is emphasizing that this guy's name is forgotten. He was acting to protect his inheritance, his legacy, which is tied to the remembering of his name. But the result of that is that his name is forgotten. His actions may be remembered, but his name has been redacted from the annals of history, from God's word. But compare that to Boaz. In verse 4 and in verse 10, you know, he expresses this concern explicitly for the name of the dead to be remembered. He's taking the risk the other man wouldn't, risking his own name, risking his own legacy for the sake of someone else, for a dead man who can never pay him back, and, and he doesn't have to do it any more than Joe Schmo has to do it. And notice what happens to Boaz's name. We remember it today. I keep saying it you know, every couple minutes. Uh, that's the blessing that he received in verse 11, that you may be renowned. The, the Hebrew expression there includes the word name, something along the lines of may your name be called in Bethlehem. But he's remembered beyond just being a, a kind character in this story of Ruth. The book of Ruth, I didn't get there, but it closes with a genealogy of David, the coming king. Remember from the book of Judges, Ruth happens during the time of Judges, and in the time of Judges, there was no king. We saw that at the end of our recent series in Judges. There's no king. Everyone does what's right in his own eyes, and that does not go well. That's not a good thing. So the book of Ruth is kind of a backstory for the coming of King David, the much-needed king for Israel. And in this genealogy, in this backstory, Boaz's name is remembered. But that's not the only royal genealogy where Boaz's name is remembered, is it? First book of the New Testament, Matthew chapter 1, opens with a genealogy of Jesus Christ. And in verse 5 of that genealogy, Boaz's name, along with Ruth, is remembered. And how is that for a legacy? So there's more going on in the book of Ruth than just ordinary people being kind to one another, as extraordinary as that is. In these ordinary and extraordinary acts of kindness, God is working his plan of salvation. This is the way God brings his coming king. This is the way God builds his kingdom, through things that seem so small to us. You know, Ruth and Boaz and Naomi's lives, they probably seem pretty small to them at the time. 
They lived in the time of judges, but they weren't judges. You know, they didn't deliver the nation from its enemies. They didn't have super strength or command of the military. Uh, they lived in the small town of Bethlehem and, and just cared for each other. Uh, they all died not knowing the greater fruit that God would bring from those simple acts of kindness to one another. They didn't know their great-great-grandson would be King David. They didn't know that God would make a covenant with King David so that a, a descendant of his and theirs would reign forever, and that a distant descendant would be the king and the redeemer, the Messiah, the savior of all the world. But isn't that the way the kingdom comes? Isn't that what Jesus taught about the kingdom? Jesus said the kingdom of heaven is like a mustard seed. It's so small and so significant, insignificant compared to other seeds. You, you might lose it. Yet it's going to grow to be the tallest plant in the garden, practically a tree. The, the birds are going to uh, rest in its branches. But now it seems so small. It seems so insignificant. It's easy to miss if you don't have eyes of faith to see it, to know what to look for. Or the kingdom is like yeast in, in bread dough. I've been baking too, by the way. Uh, but you, you, you can't see it. It's hidden. It changes everything, doesn't it? Or like a treasure hidden in the field. A man goes and, and sells all he has to buy that field. Why would he buy that field? There's treasure hidden in the field that you, you might not understand why he's selling everything he has for this field if you didn't know the greater treasure beneath the surface. That's how the kingdom comes because that's how the king came, isn't it? That's how Christ came. He was born a tiny infant laid in a manger in Bethlehem, by the way. And he was announced to shepherds, he was forced to flee to Egypt, raised in the backwater town of Nazareth, laboring in obscurity until he was 30, homeless once he began his ministry, welcoming little children, befriending outcasts and sinners, washing his disciples' feet, being equal to God, but he took on the form of a servant, humbling himself to learn obedience to the point of death, even death on a cross. I'm quoting Philippians chapter 2 now. And what does the scripture say happened next? After he, Because he became obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. What happened? God exalted him and bestowed on him the name that is above all names. Boaz points us to Christ, doesn't he? The Redeemer who humbled himself, gave his life so that the dead might not be cut off forever. And as a result, his name is remembered. Jesus came not to be served, but to serve and give his life a ransom, a redemption for many. That's hard for us to accept, isn't it? That the Son of God came to serve our need. Oh, I know, it's also easy for us to think that God's job is to do whatever we want or whatever we think we need, but, but really to look at the cross and accept the service that Christ freely gives, to let our master wash our feet, to trust in his work and not our own. Uh, we can come to believe this in an instant through the grace of God, but we spend our whole lives trying to understand what it really means. We just keep thinking that we have something to offer. 
some merit of our own. We think it's too bold to accept so great a gift. We want to at least pick up the tip. It's hard for us to stand before God and simply receive. But this is what pleases God. This is what honors his son. This is what the Spirit calls us to do. Jesus emptied himself. He took on the form of a servant by becoming a humble, obedient, crucified man. And you want to glorify him? Starts with remembering that great act of kindness, what he did for you. Ladies, here is your Boaz, and gentlemen as well. Here's your Redeemer, the Lord Jesus Christ, who laid down his life to bring you life. So Boaz points us to Christ, but because Christ also calls us to serve others as he served us, we can also see in Boaz a model of what it means to be like Jesus, to get entangled, to take risks, to make ourselves less for the sake of others who might never be able to pay us back. That's how we point to Christ, by being Christ-like. But it's surprisingly easy for us as Christians and as churches to miss that. We can start thinking that big things from us, that's what the cause of Christ really needs. And that starts translating into success and uh, abilities and fame and even numbers and dollars. It all starts with a good intention. We want the gospel to go forth. We want to make a difference. We have gospel ambition, and we should. We should have more. We should not have less. But the hearts of men are easily corrupted. We can start looking at things outwardly, judging success by things that we can count. We can forget that the kingdom is a mustard seed. We can forget that the greatest in the kingdom is the slave of all, that As he must increase, we must decrease. We start to think Jesus needs us to be big. That we need to be the most talented people or find the most talented people. We need to have the most polished and and professional programming. We start uh, thinking we need to model our churches after uh, famous ministries and celebrity pastors. If they're famous, if they're at conferences, if they're on the radio, they must be doing something right. Their gifts are obvious. Their character is mostly invisible to us, and that's what we so desperately need modeled for us is character. And then we can be crushed when we see those people we look to falling. We can be drawn to the same error as the Corinthian church. Paul wrote two letters to the the Corinthians. They were obsessed with gifts, obsessed with the charm and the charisma and communication skills of these so-called super apostles. The apostle Paul, uh, who who struggled with these churches, by contrast, he was was unimpressive. Uh, His presence is weak. His speech is of no account, they say about him. You, You don't find yourself thinking when you're around Paul that I I can just tell I'm in the presence of greatness. But his ambition for the gospel is beyond question. Uh, He doesn't spread the gospel, though, by building a ministry empire with his name on it. He, He just works hard, and he suffers hard for the gospel. In 1 Thessalonians 2, he, he describes himself as gentle, like a nursing mother with her children. The power comes from God alone. 
When we think that we need to build a name for ourselves or for our church or our ministry in order to make a difference for Jesus, we're starting to have more in common with the builders of the Tower of Babel than the Church of Christ. That was the goal of those builders, wasn't it? To build something that reaches to heaven, and they said to make a name for ourselves. And sadly, what happens as we try to build that tower is we can stop caring about people the way Christ does. Think of Joe Schmo or Paloni Almoni, the, the poor foreign widow who needed help, was of no use in building his legacy, only hurt it. And we can be like that. We can start to think that people have value in as much as they can help build the ministry, the legacy, the brand. Uh, Those who come to us hurting and need, they're a distraction from, from the work of ministry that we've got to do. And with this mindset, we can be prone to, to hurting people, uh, prone to ignoring sin in the lives of those we think have been useful in building the tower. And we can think that we're doing it all in the name of the kingdom. We can forget the call to deny ourselves, take up our cross, and follow Christ. There's another interesting contrast in the opening chapters of the book of Revelation. Jesus sent letters to seven churches, and I'm always struck by the contrast between two of them, the church in Sardis and the church in the city of Philadelphia. The church in Sardis, in Revelation 3.1, it says they have a name that they are alive, but they are dead. They have a reputation for being a healthy and vibrant church, apparently. But Jesus sees through it all. Their deeds don't match their reputation. If they don't repent, Jesus himself will come in judgment. But the promise given to those who do overcome, that person's name will be written in the book of life and never removed. That reminds me of Boaz, not famous outside of Bethlehem anyway, but his name is remembered in God's book, isn't it? Simply because he was kind to this poor widow. On the other hand, uh, Revelation 3.8, we read that the church of Philadelphia has little power. They're not big or influential, but they're faithful. They haven't denied Christ's name and Christ knows them and if they remain faithful to the end the promise he makes to them revelation 3:12 is to write on them the name of God and the name of the city of God and his own new name think about that promise Jesus lowly servant who died for the sins of his people therefore god exalted him and given and, and gave him the name that is above all names and he promises to write that name on those who hold fast to the word of christ whether we have a name for ourselves in this world or not the world may not see you or this church as important or interesting or valuable the world may not see us at all your contributions may be unknown beyond those close to you, like, like Ruth and like Naomi, like Boaz. You may not know how your life uh, may already have pointed people to Jesus, how God may use the seeds of kindness, those little mustard seeds, to plant something amazing. Jesus sees 
and Jesus knows, down to the merest cup of cold water given in his name, he knows. What may seem small to you may in God's book turn out to be something big. His kingdom come and his will done. So go forth and plant mustard seeds and trust God to give the growth. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for who Christ is. We thank you that there is a Redeemer. And we thank you that for reasons we will never fully comprehend, Christ chose to show kindness to us at such a great cost to himself. He became entangled in our existence, identified with us in the curse, and and came to a world where uh, he could take on nothing but suffering and, and pain and death. But he chose to do that to pay the price to redeem us. That we might not be cut off that our names might not be blotted out, but that they should be written in the book of life. Thank you for this promise. We ask that you would help us to grow ever fond, ever in love with who you are and all that you have done for us. May we never grow tired of hearing the story of Jesus and his love. But may we also be transformed. Help us to be like Christ. Give us eyes of faith to see how you are at work among us in things that seem so small. Help us to be like Christ and help us to point others to him so that your name might be glorified. In Christ's name, amen.